0: ladies and gentlemen boys and girls welcome to the hyperion hub your meeting place for all things disney now your hosts hello and welcome to the hyperion hub your meeting place for all things disney i'm john Alois, joined by sean degenhart here 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 and john redling schaefer
1: greetings amigos
0: wherever (laughs) sorry john you made me laugh Whatever platform you're following us on, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Please leave us a review so more people find the show. You can even share it on social media and tag us. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Before we get started with our Disney views, Sean has a reminder about our big event, September 3rd, about a week and a half away.
2: Yes, uh, Mary Poppins opens at Cornstock Theater in Peoria, Illinois, on August 26th. Tickets are still available at cornstocktheater.com. Um That's S-T-O-C-K-T-H-E-A-T-R-E. Um, but Saturday, September 3rd, closing night of Mary Poppins, Jeff Sherman will be in the audience. Um, he'll be watching the program. We are so excited about that. But earlier that afternoon, he will be at the Peoria Riverfront Museum. He'll be doing a lecture and Q&A, some discussion about growing up the son of a Sherman brother and, you know, time he spent on the Disney lot during the filming of Mary Poppins and memories he has. He'll also be doing a screening of he and his cousin Greg's fabulous documentary, The Boys, The Sherman Brother's Story. We're really excited about that. Um, you can get tickets for that at PuriaRiverfrontMuseum.org. Again, it's Saturday, September 3rd at 2 o'clock.
0: Excellent. Onto our Disney views, and we're going to go around our room here and talk about our favorite sidekicks. And we can't say John Alois and John Redling Schaefer as the best sidekick. I've
2: never known John Alois to be a sidekick to anybody. <laughs> he is the feature attraction.
0: Uh, well... Let's start off with Sean.
2: Um, well, I mean, there's so many favorites. I mean, you think of Sebastian from The Little Mermaid, Zazu, Pascal. Has to be Jiminy Cricket.
0: Okay, you need a good. You need. <laughs> I think need
2: a, you. I think, you've, I think you've been judged, Sean. No, that's a, great. Okay, I,
0: I love Jiminy Cricket. I feel I, a little triggered. So what? <laughs> what is it about uh, your conscience that um, makes you choose Jiminy Cricket?
2: Um, I would venture to say he is one of the first real Disney sidekicks. I mean, you've got the seven dwarfs with Snow White, but they weren't really, you know, companions, you know, feeding off of her with, you know, in that kind of relationship. But Jiminy Cricket, I think, was the first and kind of set the standard for the friend, you know, looking out for you, making sure you're making the right choices.
0: You know, some might argue he's the strongest character in the movie and maybe the strongest sidekick. That Disney's ever had. That's a great choice.
2: Are you one of those people that would argue that?
0: I could be swayed. Sure. It's the first time I've thought about it this this long. So yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Obviously, there are many to choose from. If you ask me this question tomorrow, I might give you a different answer. I'm going to go with a villain and go with Mr. Smee. (laughs) I think that probably uh, came out of left field, but... There's something about Mr. Mr. Smee's high-pitched voice. I'll save you, Captain. You know, there's just that he could go either way as far as being a good guy or a bad guy sometimes. But for the most part, Mr. Smee is a lovable character, even though he is a villain.
2: Now, you know that Bill Thompson, who did the voice of Mr. Smee, was also the voice of Droopy Dog.
0: Yes, the original Droopy Dog, yes.
2: Old-time radio shows. He did a ton of uh, programs.
0: Yeah, I love when he cries during Your Mother and Mine, and, <laughs> and Captain Hook turns around and tells him to shut up <laughs> quietly. <laughs> I love that part. That's why I'm going with Mr. Smee. John.
1: All right, you guys went old school. I'm going new school. Vanellope von Schweetz. So you have a a character who just doesn't give up, you have a character who fights for what she believes in. And at the end, guess what? She ends up in charge of the whole place. So I, I I did. I gave it some thought, and you both made excellent choices. I just felt that, you know what? Maybe a little modern touch, too, as a reminder that sometimes the person you least expect can be the, the biggest winner in the end.
0: Yeah, and arguably the strongest arc for any sidekick as well. Great choices. We're looking forward to talking with our guest this week, author of the new book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, from Chicago Review Press. Jake Friedman joins us. Welcome, Jake. Hi, thank you. Good to be here. I have read this book. I read it in two days. I loved it. I couldn't wait to dive into it. The 1941 Disney Studio Strike, Pivotal Moment, for the company. We as fans have waited for a clear story about this strike for a long time. What drew you to this topic and when did the research begin?
3: It was handed to me. The project was handed to me by a man named John Colhane, the late, great John Colhane was an author of animation books like uh, The Making of Fantasia, The Making of Aladdin, The Making of Fantasia 2000. And he was teaching uh, animation history at NYU when I was his student way back in 2001. And I loved his class, I loved him. I I uh, audited his class again and again until I graduated. And when he invited me back around 2006 or so to speak to his class as a young professional, it was then that he told me, maybe it was 2007 that I would be writing this book. So he didn't ask me; he told me, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "What? What?" And it took me it took me some maybe like a year and a half to ramp up to it, to the idea of writing something this massive or and this significant. You know, lots of people's uh, parents or grandparents had a lot at stake during the Disney studio strike. And I wanted to do all of them justice, particularly Art Babbitt, who was sort of the main figure. He was, you know, for those who've read the book, he was like the top animator of the time and he ended up leading the strike. So I wanted to do his family justice too. And all in all, it took like from beginning to end, maybe like 14 years Wow! from then to now. and And I was researching during all that time. I was researching Like up to maybe like a few weeks before publication, (laughs) things always come out of the woodwork, you know, Mm -hmm. you have a cool quote that you're like, I have to put this in here. This is too good.
0: Talk about that research. Just describe some of the challenges. Maybe were you, were you running into brick walls? Were there, were there roads that you thought were wide open then all of a sudden closed off to you? This is 14 years of studying this subject.
3: Yeah. I was hoping that the Disney company would help a little bit. Like the Disney company has a lot of archives because they have kept and had kept since the thirties, incredible records. It was like Walt knew that this was momentous stuff that they were doing. And he even had like secretaries taking stenographic notes, like word for word. He said this, he said this, he said this of all the meetings. And if the Disney archives uh, can let you access that, that's a treasure trove of stuff. I didn't have that luxury, but luckily there are a lot of people outside the studio who have private collections of research materials. And if they know that you are serious and that you are uh, not out to trash talk the company, um they'll share their stuff with you. I think what helped is that I had this blog called the Babbitt blog that started like 10 years ago or something. And I used that as a place for me to deposit my research and organize my thoughts. And unbeknownst to me, that sort of became kind of popular amongst Disney fans and people were researching that and like auction houses were using that as research material. Don Hahn used it as research material in his book, citing pages about the art, models that were brought into the studio that i had uncovered and i was just doing it to dive into the story because i was trying to get such a three-dimensional picture of what it was like at the time i was trying to uncover every nook every cranny and really put myself in the shoes of a disney animator i found that most books about disney were like describing walt disney but i thought to myself i really want to know what it was like to To be there as an employee, I think most people would relate to the employee aspect of it. To be working for someone who you think is great, but uh, what's it like to be there, to walk the halls, to clock in, clock out, and to be in this momentous time when the studio was just exploding with creativity and innovation during the 30s? Um, I was able to find, as far as research is concerned, some really... Unique sources. So the Babbitt family, his widow opened up her home and all of her records to me. And for about 10 years until she passed away, I would visit her every year in Los Angeles and stay at her house. And it was the last house where Art Babbitt lived. And she kept all of his stuff. And this is stuff going back to. I don't know. I found photos from the roaring 20s <laughs> that he had taken. He had, and he was kind of meticulous about his notes, too. He had a filing cabinet filled with manila folders. Wow. And I was just going through all that stuff. And he had letters and he had a diary and he had home movies that he shot at the Disney studio. Wow. And he had memos and he had audio recordings of his own interviews that he had done. And I really for, you know, I never met him. He died when I was 11. But I really felt I got a chance to kind of get in his head as much as anybody can. And I began to identify with him a little bit. I felt like he was everything I was, but more so. I was an animator. I worked in animation for 10 years Mm -hmm. in New York, exclusively though. But he was like a super great animator. I'm an activist. It's not that hard if you're in New York City to be an activist, Mm -hmm. but he led a labor strike, you know? I was really into education and I had been teaching and he was like, he saw the super value of bringing animation education to the public and to the people at Disney. Like he was, I just could see myself in him a little bit. And I also, in addition to that, I grew up kind of in a union family. Like my parents were never, you know, raising flags or banners all the time. But uh, I knew that my parents were part of the teachers union of Philadelphia. And sometimes union talk would cross the dinner table. And I knew that my parents went on strike in 1973, way before I was born, and that my parents were arrested for going on strike because it was illegal for public school teachers to strike. And each of them, my mom, my dad, and my grandmother, all were arrested for striking. So it was never like, oh, I hate the management or, or down, down with the man. It was more like unions are part of working and sometimes you have to protect your rights. No big deal, that's just how it is sometimes. So I grew up with that and I grew up with a love for Disney. Like Disney Channel, classic cartoons, the films, going to Disney World. Like I love both these things. I love unions and I love Disney. I admire people who fight for unions, and I admire Walt Disney. And I wanted to make a story that shows how both of these people had their reasons for doing what they were doing. And I hope I succeeded. Oh, absolutely. Oh, and as far as as research, I almost forgot. I also uncovered two other really cool sources of research. And one was, you know, there, there are troves of research if you open up a book that's related to something that you... Are researching, and then you look in the the, the endnotes or the bibliography. And Tom Cito wrote a great book like 16 years ago called Drawing the Line about animation unions. And one chapter was dedicated to the Disney strike. And there was a source in there about um, uh, University of Southern California Oviatt Library. So I went there to the OBI library. And apparently it has a collection of like original strike memos and bulletins and, and handbills. And I found myself reading the very material that the strikers were reading day by day. Wow. Yeah. It's sort of like scrolling through someone's messages, you know, day by day. You, I was, I, I suddenly had like a day by day calendar of what strikers were experiencing. Um, And then I discovered a document in the Babbitt House that led me to uh, the National Archives of San Francisco. I knew that Art Babbitt sued the Disney company twice. So he sued them once for unpaid bonuses that he felt he was owed and he lost that case. And at the same time, he sued them for firing him unfairly, saying that it was discrimination and that case He won, but it was appealed by Disney. And because it was appealed, the record of that case ended up in in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And that record in its entirety was in the San Francisco archive. And that record is about 1500 pages long, including all eight days of testimony from 1942, word for word, and all the evidence that was submitted. And this was right then, like hardly a year after it happened. Memories are fresh. It's still the golden age of Disney animation. And among the evidence were transcriptions of meetings, again, word for word, that I'd never seen or heard of anywhere else. And when I have dialogue in the book, it's pulled from these meetings. And and you get to basically hear Walt's voice talking about the strike and you get to hear what meetings are like outside the studio and, and animators talking about the strike. And it was just, that I think for me was one of the like most prime jewels that I was able to find because it really brought these characters to life. I'm able to hear their voices and share that with the reader.
0: That's amazing.
1: I think we're hearing why the professor chose someone to write this book. I mean, I, I so I do want to take that step back. So you're auditing this class at NYU. What was your major?
3: Uh, my major was animation. Film, TV, uh, colon, animation. So this was NYU Tisch School of the Arts. They have animation is not really a major. It's a focus, or at least it was then. And I'd, my dream was to work in film and television doing character animation and art thereof. And uh, I majored in film and TV, you know, calling animation. And that's exactly what I ended up doing. I worked in cartoon shows in New York and films on the East Coast doing character stuff. And, and um, some parts of it I love. Some parts were it exactly... Exactly what I envisioned it would be. Uh, And then there were some parts that allowed me to sympathize with why a person might go on strike. You know, it really depends on who your employer is and what your needs are.
0: Now, this might not be an easy task, but we're going to see if we can pull it off. Um, Maybe just in a general, brief sense, can you describe the strike? I know there were a lot of reasons why it led why what happened happened, but generally speaking, it happened when and for roughly how long and, you know, what, what were those feelings kind of, as we walked into the strike? Okay. Uh,
3: well, nothing happened in a vacuum. Everything was a result of something else. And, you know, if we go back to, you know, the mid thirties, Hollywood is creating its unions, like the Screen Actors Guild, we've all heard of, and you have the Screen Writers Guild coming up soon after, and you have the Screen Directors Guild, and you have uh, a union for set painters, and you have a union for office workers, and pretty soon, like every craft in Hollywood is getting a union. And remember, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president at the time. This is a very like, you know, and. He's trying to fight off the Great Depression. So this is a very union-friendly administration. And he develops the uh, National Labor Relations Administration, um, headed by Frances Perkins, the first woman on any presidential cabinet. Fun fact. And so Hollywood is becoming a union town. The only craft at the end of the day that doesn't have a union is the animation artists. And then at the end of 1940, MGM, the studio that does Tom and Jerry or Wood in a, in a, in a year or so, um, brings in the union with like no fight at all. They just sign on and everyone's salaries go up and this hits the trade papers. Everyone reads it in Variety. Um, and suddenly this union, this independent union, is getting some traction. Um, at the same time, within the Disney studio, people are trying to have an in-studio union that doesn't extend past the studio lot. Um, and management will have none of it. Like they try to negotiate with management. Management keeps putting them off, giving them the cold shoulder. And by management, I mean... Um, not just not just Walt, he's not really tied up with that so much, but it's, it's Roy and the vice president, Gunther Lessing. And so the man who was in charge of this union was Art Babbitt. He was heading this in-studio union. And then seeing that the, the studio doesn't want to have anything to do with this in-studio union and that it's mostly like for show, Babbitt is starting to feel like a stool pigeon. And so he leaves. He says, screw this. I'm going to join the independent union that is all about unionizing the craft of animation, not just one studio. You know, in 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 numbers, there's power. And so he does that. And because he's so spiteful and feeling slighted, the first action is to start or propose, rather, a boycott of Disney. And that does not sit well with Disney. That, that's the first um, I guess that's when the glove starts to come off. So, at this point, we still have several months until the strike, and just bitterness is breeding bitterness. And then the strike erupts in nineteen in May, nineteen forty-one, and lasts nine weeks. Um, and the Disney animators, at this point, are basically the only people in Hollywood who don't have a union. Every other animation studio has one and Disney animators don't. And about half the people, half the animation artists at Disney go out and about half stay in. And the numbers kind of keep changing because people are changing their minds. Some people go in who are out and some people go out who are in. So it's kind of hard to keep track. And everyone is kind of also fudging the numbers Uh and telling the press different things, trying to make their side look like they have the majority because whoever has the majority will by default win the strike but no one knows who it is and no one can decide how to determine it. The union has a way called a cross check, which is basically having a list of the staff and then having a list of the strikers and just comparing. And Walt says, no, that's BS. I want to have a vote, a a secret election. And The people at the labor board say to Walt, that's not really how we do things. And Walt says, well, I think you're going to intimidate people. And they think, well, we think you're going to intimidate people. And it's just kind of like stalemate there. Unfortunately for Walt, his vice president, again, is kind of like uh, playing the part of a fear monger Mm. and playing into Walt's already present distrust of unions and socialism, which goes back to his childhood, which I kind of mapped out and Mm -hmm. kind of like set the stage in the first few chapters. So like Walt, Walt put a lot of trust in his vice president. His vice president was a few years older, had a lot of experience as a lawyer, as a high power lawyer down in Texas. And um, he just, Walt's way of doing things was just to leave everyone else who he could trust in charge of things he didn't want to worry about. Mm -hmm. Roy would be in charge of the money while Walt could be creative and hang out and figure out all these creative solutions, to story problems. So by putting all of his trust in Gunther Lessing, this vice president who only wanted to curry Walt's favor and play into his fear. um, Walt became more and more, biased against the strikers and against unions in general until this wedge was like pretty much unfixable and at the end of the strike when it when it was finally over and the animators won by the way disney is now a union house and it has been ever since the strike so they won but the the actual people who were striking and the people who did not strike never really became friends again mm-hmm.
0: Everything changed. That college campus atmosphere completely disappeared because you you had a a camaraderie of almost 100 percent, you know, and it really did split off. Um, We've always heard Walt's side, uh, you know, and your book does a great job providing context to the story as a whole. Uh, We got to look at the strike from all sides. Art wasn't a villain. Um, but he wasn't very popular with the Disneys. And uh, how tough was it for you to remain impartial? You talked about your background. Are you ever swayed one way or the other as you're doing research or while you're writing?
3: My ulterior motive was <laughs> was never to say or have people believe that one side was wrong and the other side was right. Each side had their own reason. Excellent. Yes, you know, I'm going into this coming from a union family. So there's that. And I'm going to honor the sacrifice that people on the picket line are going to make. But I also know that, you know, Babbitt was the way he was doing it was a way that created this like vitriol Mm -hmm. and was probably, it was a great spark at the beginning to light a fire, but he kept that kind of vitriol throughout. And that at certainly for him is, is, was totally unnecessary and kind of hurtful. And like he, when he went back to the studio to continue working, it was just a toxic environment for him. Um, and I wanted to give background as, as to why a man would choose to do that too. And I hopefully did a decent job with that, explaining his childhood and how he developed into the man that he became.
0: Oh yeah. You set the story, the stage perfectly for both sides. Um, You know, I learned a lot. I knew a lot about Walt in his background and with his father and his parents, but I I learned so much more of how important Elias's thoughts, how passionate he was about, I don't want to give anything away. I just want to encourage people to read the book. And it really did help shape Walt's mind, how he was still trying to kind of ride both sides. He wanted a vote to be taken. He wanted his staff to make the majority call. And that wasn't going to happen the way the system was set up from the outside union coming in.
1: It, I liked your question, John, because I found myself, as I looked through the pages, bouncing back and forth. I really did. And obviously a credit to the author, but I just, to me, that's a proof to of objective writing. You know, I just, the the way it's it's not... You know, it's not inciting anything, um, you know, uh, pro or con about the whole situation. But I I think the word you used at the beginning, justice, was is is just so appropriate because we all come from different backgrounds, and to have that background of some of the key players that you've always heard of, or maybe in a one-sided narrative, right? Uh, I'm, I'm with you. I don't want to give too much away, but it was just a fantastic read and very quick read. I was a little surprised at how quickly I went through it.
0: Yeah. And you don't have a reporter's background, correct? Well, um I kind
3: of do. Okay. I was I've been a writer for Animation Magazine for Sure. I think since 2006. Okay. So, but what you know, are you, what are know. your
0: topics? Are you, are you covering any sort of politics through animation or So, my point is your soapbox time. Imagine yeah. a reporter looking at both sides and, and, and spending equal amount of time on both sides. That's what I love about this yes. book. Yeah, I agree. Oh, cool, right. Thanks. I've, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I'm sure he's going to be offended by what we're saying here. Yeah, right? <laughs>
3: now, let me ask you guys something. So oh, I appreciate that you don't want to give anything away, but let's give away one thing. If we were to give away one thing to your listeners, one spoiler to your listeners as a reward for tuning into your show, what do you think we should tell them?
0: Ooh. Well, one thing that I was alluding to earlier is the socialism aspect and how important that was to Elias. The the other part that I found interesting that I've never read before, as far as a a complete uh, center location of where rumors may have begun, but the anti-Semitic rumors begin after the strike ends. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, there's no, that I've seen, there's no proof of that. We've talked with jeff sherman a few times and uh the sherman brothers obviously went to bat for walt and so did many others um so it, it's it, there's so many little nuggets that i never knew go mm-hmm.
1: ahead. no I, but that's that's where i'm gonna go you you start with his history as a boy in chicago and for those disney files who have studied what walt has done i mean the testimony in front of the house on american committee and things like that in 1947 you, you can sense, again, no idea what it's like to run a company that's your lifeblood, that's your absolute reason for being. But at the same time, I guess in terms of a spoiler, I can see where the wheels start turning in a young Walt leading to how he has to do this balance mm-hmm. of being a Disney and what dad stood for and then culminating into, I'm living my dream. Who are these people trying to influence my dream. This is my destiny. And that's a hard balance. I'm not saying he's arrogant, but there has to be a level of arrogance to keep what he feels is his dream intact.
3: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very well put.
0: We will hear more from Jake Freeman next week about his book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age. It's available wherever you purchase books we will also find out more about jake and his background we'll hear his story and how he got interested in animation and became a teacher not just a student but now we have the final episode of sean's summer series i'll throw it over to him
2: It has been quite the summer. It's gone by very quickly, I think, but we are now just two days away from the opening of Mary Poppins. Uh, We started back with auditions in May, and now here we are, just a couple days. Everything's coming together, the orchestra, light, sound, costumes, flying umbrellas, the whole bit, and we are going to meet here with Chip Joyce, the director who I've been working with the past couple months, just to give some final reflections on uh, working on this show. I am here with Chip Joyce at Cornstock Theater. This is the Monday night of Tech Week. We had a long day yesterday. We did a run-through with the orchestra and then did a whole run-through of the show again last night. And what are we doing tonight, Chip? Tonight we added
4: costumes and makeup, and it's looking pretty darn good out there. Yeah,
2: so we started this actually about three years ago. We started talking about doing Mary Poppins. And because of COVID, we're finally able to do this production. So we started, what, mid-May?
4: Mid-May, with yes. With the
2: auditions? We did. How are you feeling about the whole process? I'm
4: actually, this is the biggest, most complex show I think I've ever directed, and to be Monday, and we we have an audience Thursday night, but technically our opening is this Friday. To be in this good a shape with this many more nights to kind of keep getting things right, I'm feeling very great. When, when Kelsey, our Mary, walked out, Sean probably couldn't see from his little monitor in the back, but when she walked out, I went... Oh, she looks legit. We, yeah. <laughs> we, we have a real Mary Poppins on our hands. So I'm very excited for people to see this. So how can people get tickets? When are the show dates? Uh, cornstocktheater.com is the website. Uh, you can call area code 309-676-2196 during office hours. Uh, I think those are the two ways to get tickets. And uh, don't forget the Sunday performance. We'll have the Jolly Holiday pre-show event. And, of course, our, our um, screening of the boys with jeff sherman on our closing performance
2: day yeah really excited about that that's september 3rd at two o'clock in the afternoon people can go to puria riverfrontmuseum.org and get tickets for that it's going to be awesome so yeah. chip it has been a pleasure working on this show with you likewise and we will see you at the show so that was Chip Joyce uh, inviting you, and I'm inviting you as well to join us at Mary Poppins at Cornstock Theater in Peoria, Illinois. Opens this Friday, August 26th, and runs through September 3rd. You can get tickets at cornstocktheater.com. That's C O R N S T O C K T H E A T R E. Cornstocktheater.com. It's going to be a fantastic show. Hope you can join us
0: thanks sean and don't forget what sean talked about at the top of the show september 3rd a big day for us we're one of the sponsors of a screening of the boys the sherman brothers story at the peoria riverfront museum in peoria illinois co-director of the film jeffrey sherman will be in attendance and we'll share stories and answer questions about the movie and probably the sherman brothers as well our friend steve spain is hosting that event then, as Sean just mentioned, later that night at Cornstock Theatre, Sean is music directing Mary Poppins and Jeff will be there as well for tickets. Go to riverfrontmuseum.org, and as Sean just said, cornstocktheater.com. Once again, follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram and on Twitter at Hub Hyperion. Email us at podcast at com. Wherever you're listening to us, please rate and review so more people find the show. And it really does help others to find the show. We've had some wonderful reviews on there. Thank you to everyone who's taken time to do that. We ask if you do have a few minutes to go ahead and leave a rating and review for us. Until next week, have a great one, everybody. We're glad you could join
2: us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email or send us a recorded audio message at podcast at thehyperionhub.com. Find us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Hyperion Hub is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or its subsidiaries. We'll meet you next time at the Hyperion Hub.